resolve the issue and that the guru would be uh, he requests the guru to depart before the bulk of the mughal forces come along because then there would be a problem because he does mention that uh, you know the mughals and the sikhs have a history so the guru being there in a mughal encampment would be pretty much a danger for the guru so that's one point of evidence that's contemporary the other one is a near contemporary letter now raja ram singh died and his son raja jay singh the second you know uh, succeeded to his throne and he was the commander in chief of the mughal army for bahadur shah now intriguingly enough at that time raja jay singh the second actually traveled outside delhi but he had agents at the mughal court in delhi so what happened was that a uh, one of these agents actually wrote a letter which was uh, uncovered by dr uh, balwant singh tillo in this letter he uh, mentions that you know the khalsa sikhs have uh, become rebels they are leading a revolution and this revolution he's referring to is the one which is uh, you know which was done under banda singh bahadur and he describes how the sikhs retain uh, hair and uh, long mustaches big beards and then he actually clarifies that this uh, the gurus in question one of these gurus their ninth guru guru teg bahadur accompanied raja ram singh to bengal to resolve the issue with the rajputs so that's a near contemporary evidence two pieces of solid evidence which puts a lie to that uh, myth which is being propagated in that article well you do make very interesting points here and produce evidence and uh, uh how do i say this uh, in very simple words uh, the uh, there are so many claims made about us and you just mentioned one hmm. that the gurus were employees and uh, there there is uh, how do i say a massive propaganda to say that guru gobind singh actually created the sikhs guru nanak didn't yes that's right uh, it's uh, quite a lot of this uh, fake history i guess we are having thrust onto us this was actually produced in the uh, 18th century or the early 19th century i mean one of the things which is being recounted now is guru gobind singh uh, was clean shaven all the gurus before him were clean shaven and uh, guru gobind singh went to a temple to worship chandi and uh, when he was meditating there to manifest her his uh, pubes and his hairs grew long and uh, he said oh well look because this is what has happened to me my sikhs will keep long hair from now there is a- another thing that i'd like to mention here hmm Do you know sometimes they are, well, at, at least on Facebook I've seen that and I, I've read it on a few websites as well. Hmm. They will simply say that, that the, the modern Sikhi today is a, a British creation. That's, that's quite a ludicrous myth, because, but that's something which has been taken on by our uh, idiot hobbyists as well, who call themselves hobbyists or, you know, so-called uh, private or amateur researchers. uh this is a western lens that's a eastern lens that's a so and so lens that's a so and so lens it just convolutes what you know whatever point they're trying to make because really what it comes down to is that if sikhi is a british creation then whatever has happened in the last 30 40 years why do you guys protest so heavily about that they are that uh, sikhi was essentially a branch of hinduism and the british trying uh, giving a through the policy of divide and conquer or divide and rule i'd say they create hmm. they created a divide uh, between sikhs and uh, the branch of hinduism and well sikhs as hinduism and they divided sikhs from the mainstream hinduism well you got to wonder why did they only reserve that policy for sikhs has anyone explained that 
Well, no, because uh, Sikhs are the fighting arm of uh, the Hindu religion. So that's why it's essential to differentiate them. <laughs> and that ignores quite a lot of uh, salient uh, perspectives and uh, facts which are replete in Sikh history. Now, that article in question mention, mentions a few other things. First one is that, you know, up till Guru Arjan, there was nothing called Sikhi. Well, we actually have more evidence. We have near contemporary evidence from uh, Kashmir. Guru Amardas went to Kashmir and down there he actually uh, decided to set up camp in a governor's uh, garden, a big garden. And uh, the governor uh, protested quite, uh, you know, vocally, very angry, went to the local military governor and requested him to, uh, you know, kick Guru Amardas out of uh, Kashmir. And the governor was obviously a Muslim, so the governor asked, well, why? And uh, this individual in question, the governor, he brought along quite a lot of Brahmins and priests, the clergy. And they clarified that Guru Amardas speaks against caste, that uh, Gurbani, you know, is quite uh, offensive to their sentiments, and that these people are some new religion, so they need to be actually, uh, you know, ousted, expelled to uh, retain peace in Kashmir. Now, that's, that's quite a significant piece of evidence as well. Then we have Gurbani itself, and we have all these uh, all this material from the life of Guru Nanak, which if we sift through the falsity, we discover the truth that it was always going to be a distinctive identity, a separate identity. So that statement, which is actually made in that article, is just pretty much an assertion. It has nothing to back it up. I mean, if you check the bibliography, the first one refers to some uh, vague captain's diary, and the other three are hyperlinks. Click on the hyperlinks. And you lead uh, to personal accounts which have no historic merit, just people randomly barking online. I'll, I'll tell you a, a small joke. Hmm. They say that uh, there was a ship sailing to the New World, yeah? Yes. And a mysterious illness fell upon the ship. Yes. So the, the owners and the operators of the ship were of a different genetic extraction than the people who were being carried to the new world. Okay, yep. And because of that mysterious illness, uh, the, the, how do I say, the masters died and the slaves just uh, were still alive. Yes. <laughs> so the slaves said, okay, well, we can't go back because we don't have the skills. The ship would just sail as because they had set the sail. Yep. What do we do? And they simply say, okay, so since we're going to the new world and all the masters have died, so we'll probably say uh, sail into the port or whatever and yeah. go near the land, and then we will just try to hide somewhere and start and start a new nation of our own. So yeah, fair enough. Yep. So the wisest amongst those people, he simply said, "Okay, how, what do we tell the locals where where we are coming from?" <laughs> yep. So they created history in in a vacuum. So there was essentially nothing, but they just made a false something, a myth, to explain their origins. No, they simply say we're going to a new place. We are going to enter a new century, let's say, in this way. Yep. So let's create some history to make ourselves feel important, to tell other <laughs> people that, yeah, we have done something, even though we haven't done anything for the past 2,000 years. Yep, yep. So it is a, a, that kind of a civilizational joke that we haven't done anything, but you and I will sit together. I'll say something, and you will verify it, even though we we are both. The only thing we're qualified is to say, "Yep, that that's the sun. That's it. We know nothing else." 
and that's it. But we have to create history. So just just lie and lie and lie and create some create something, and eventually, if you enforce it enough, people will believe it. And that's relevant to what's happening today, isn't it, with us? It it is very relevant because sometimes you uh, I read I read plenty of this thing online, and uh, it's not a recent recent thing. It has been continuing for the past. Well, since the age of social media, since I haven't read that many books, and of course, uh, you have read so many of them. That's why I, uh, I always uh, look up to you when I'm looking for some <laughs> evidence or something. Yep. The, the simply uh, they never mention Pai Mati Das. They hmm. always write Pai Mati Das Sharma. Hmm. They simply say that all of them were Hindus. Which is pretty intriguing because if you look at the Pat, well, he's the Pandava, he's the records of the contemporaries of the Gurus, there are retainers and, uh, you know, Pats used to come to the, like where the Gurus were once a year or some of them actually used to stay with them 24-7. They used to write down everything which happened in the Guru's court. And uh, Gyani Garjasing historian actually uh, uncovered quite a lot of those uh, documents, those uh, contemporary documents. And according to those documents, by Matidas, by uh, Diala, and uh, by Satidas, they were brothers. Their father was actually a low caste tanner, a Jamar, who had converted to Sikhi, and through the merit of his seva, Guru Harai had actually made him his primary, uh, his premier retainer, his uh, chief retainer, and the brothers followed suit as well. Mm-hmm. And where this fake history comes, because now you're telling me that they were Sharmas. I've actually seen them, and it's been asserted that they were Baniyas and not Brahmins. Or oh, whatever they were, they tried to assert they were not Sikhs. And <laughs> what's intriguingly enough is there was that uh, meme online, and I was seeing it, and they actually had, you know, one of these uh, uh, figure representing a fake historian, and that fake historian is saying that, you know, Sikhi, Jainism, and Buddhism are, you know, a part of... Uh, our um, history, our Indic history is the way they see it. And then uh, there's another figure and they say, oh, well, you know, those people made their own history because they left your uh, culturalism, your faith, your belief system. And then that figure, uh, there's a picture of that figure, you know, with the down slanted eyebrows getting very angry. And that's actually what's happening down here as well. Now, you can see that from that article, there seems to be quite a lot of emotional issues with the author because... A, there is nothing substantive, but B, every attempt has been made to just about impose every lie or insult they can think of upon the gurus. Uh, I'll give you one example from my own life. Yep. And you might find it hard to digest and disgusting to listen to. Yep. Do you know where is the the Riverhead community uh, north of Auckland, northwest of Auckland? Uh, Yes, vaguely. There's a Riverhead forest. Yep. There's a shooting range there. Hmm. I used to go there for, well, of course, shooting and uh, sighting the guns and everything, yeah? Yep. Close to the Riverhead town, there is, how do I say, an ashram. Okay, yep. So one day, I decided to take a walk to the local gas station to eat some pies. Yep. And... Uh, and uh, they were out of drinks because uh, their fridge refrigerator broke down. Yep. I said, fair enough. So I was just uh, taking the walk back and I uh, came across the ashram. I said, fair enough. Uh, may I have some water, please? Yep. Is this an ashram in the Indian sense of the term? Yeah, uh, uh, ashram uh, in the sense that uh, I saw white Hindus there. 
Okay, yep. Yeah, so I had my iPod on. Yep. And then instead of taking my earphones out, I just paused the music. Hmm. Yeah? Yes. I drank the water. Hmm. And some uh, white Kiwi girl who was wearing a sari and a tikka. Yep. Asked an Indian guy that, who who is he? Yep. And assuming that I had my music on, he answered with a single word. And the word was Taliban. Mm. This is from my own life. Yep. And I was so disgusted that I said, well, in my, in, in my rage of anger, because of what he has done, I might do something that I, that I shouldn't do. So I decided to walk away. And I simply said, it's all, he just, he's lying and I walked away. Yep. Well, it may, may have been the right thing to do at that, mo- that moment because I don't think they were willing to listen to me anyhow. Yep. Yep. I simply said he's lying and I walked away. Yep. So the fact is that even in New Zealand, in the modern world, where people can, where they are just one Google search away from searching at who I am or who we are in general. Yep. He simply said a single word, Taliban. My own life, my personal experience, and I was so disgusted. Hmm. That I couldn't shoot my guns properly that day. I think this same and, mushroom and, was actually and, yep. And and I'm sorry to say that I while shooting guns, which was quite a normal thing in New Zealand, I did felt <laughs> like I was Taliban. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, it's all it's, hills and something. Yeah, well, it's pretty good. You could actually, you know, see the positives out of that experience. But in essence, you really need to wonder. I mean, and that's that goes for our religious organizations as well. What's actually being really, you know, taught down there, if someone has the gumption to actually, you know, be in an ashram with all the meditative practices and everything, and then turn around and say Taliban, well, you know, you've got to seriously start thinking what's actually happening down here. And that's why most of these uh, new age ashrams should actually be shut down or investigated because you get a lot of, uh, I guess, not notorious acts happening inside is the only way I can explain it. Well, it's not just that because you you have you have to uh, carefully notice that people uh, there's a very strong claim that we are a five thousand year civilization, yeah. Yep. And uh, a lot of people will respect you for that. Wow, you're still continuing. Yeah, you, you must be, must be doing something right. Yep. And then there is this bovine manure claims that the ancient India was so advanced that we were just flying to the moon and back. Now, on that issue, there is actually a personality on uh, Facebook called Vinod Chand, who I follow. He's a, he's a writer who lives in India, but um, he's in South India. And uh, Chand actually made something, well, I guess it was a prudent comment, even though he uh, phrased it pretty ludicrously. So he was saying that the ancient Indians had planes, but what he couldn't figure out was why they had horse-drawn chariots and they were carrying around swords, which were 10 kg in weight, when you uh, have people claiming that they also had nuclear bombs, which they could shoot on their arrows. Well, uh, uh, let's uh, clear this this, uh, this myth with just a single example, yep. which is more practical. Yep. You have plenty of knowledge today, let's say. Yes, yes. You can build a house. Yep. Maybe you have some more skills and everything. Let's say yep. 
time travel was invented and you went back to let's say the year 1300 let's say for the sake of argument okay, yep. yep even though you have all the modern knowledge what can you create over there nothing okay i might say okay fair enough i will introduce them to the new methods of building let's say yep yeah but where were you bring the nails from the screws from Mm-hmm. What we take for granted today would need to be developed at the time. <clears throat> There is no concrete. No There's concrete. No hmm. No, uh, nothing. Where are you yep. going to, br- to bring the modern standards of, uh, let's say, steel or iron? Hmm. Of oh. fabrication. So, if if somebody makes a claim that uh, we had flying planes. Yep. for planes you need to be able to construct an engine hmm for an, an engine there needs to be a fuel there needs to be an extraction process there need to be screws made there needs to be belts made there needs to be flywheels made there needs to be a milling machine mm-hmm. there needs to be an uh, how do i say an iron and steel plant you need We, uh... smaller machines to run that plant and interestingly enough all of that is, all of that is missing just the final very very advanced product is there wow man what a claim see now that's that's something which is interesting because you bring it up now it's claimed that there was that amount of technology back then yep. what actually happened to the technology how did it fall into you know disuse like why can't we find any evidence of it and why can't that technology have been resurrected in the past 200 300 years you know that all the foreign invaders were coming in well you could simply make a claim that people were so advanced they left this earth for another planet wow his his thought settled and buried yep i mean you could rana sanga could have bombed the shit out of babur if he had planes like this there there is a motivational speaker on youtube and i'll send you a link yep and i saw a video of uh, of him It was actually very interestingly a reaction from some Pakistani dudes and well it's a, it's a new trend on uh, YouTube that ev- everybody across the world just reacts to Indian videos to get some more views and self subscribers and therefore money yeah yep so he simply said that Maharana Pratap was seven and a half feet tall yep his shoes weighed 10 kg and so did it so yep and his uh, armor weighed more than 50 kg Jeez. <laughs> they are not satisfied with the single those that say he was a patriot he fought for his mewar uh, he fought to free his people they're not satisfied with that hmm but they have to invent lies upon lies oh he was this tall he, you know he carried a sword this big you know he, his armor was 50 kg his shoes were weighed 10 kg if he weighed that much then his horse must be a belgian draft horse <laughs> yep it must have been mechanized no if, if you have seen the belgian draft or they they're specifically bred for strength they can't run very fast no no i mean i mean what you're telling me this doesn't really sound like a historic figure this actually sounds like someone out of dynasty warriors <laughs> oh, oh, well the fact is you have to lie your own people to to get to get their respect that oh wow he was a great warrior they're not satisfied with the fact that he was a warrior He fought for his people he was a brave man that's enough yep. 
for for a decent person. Hmm. You don't need, you don't need to invent lies about him. See, the issue is when you start making gods out of historic personalities, people start believing that these, you know, similar demigods will come and save you, except we know the reality, no god ever save humanity. Humanity has to save itself. It's it might sound pretty good now, but it's counterproductive in the long run because you're just mentally enslaving your own people. And also in the in the long run you are dismissing the historical figure entirely. So you you're actually disingenuously being dishonest to the memory of that individual in question you're disrespecting them. Yes, and we yes uh, you are indeed and we 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 also have so many examples of the same from our own history a so-called history. Yeah, I mean I, I don't know if you remember I mean I don't know what the exact figure was was it Jovi 24 foot lumber sheet 20 20 yeah <laughs> I mean can anyone tell us where such individuals have been buried so we can measure their spine size and see how their spine actually remained rooted to the other bones in their body why they didn't have any back problems or you know foot problems and if somebody asked them seriously that even if you had 20 foot tall sikh warriors yep how the hell did gurgobind singh manage to end up in a way he did that's interesting now another aspect because you mentioned gurgobind singh now there are there is the historical reality who gurgobind singh was then there is the you know overzealous mythology which posits that you know gurgobind singh could perform miracles which is being dishonest to his memory Then we have what was written on that article that after Guru Tegh Bahadur's uh, shit, the oh well, what the article implies is that Guru Tegh Bahadur was killed for being dishonest. It says that uh, the you know Rajput Hill chieftains sheltered Guru Gobind Singh, but he turned against them. Now, interestingly enough, another contemporary source mentioned in a Sikh history from Persian sources by Garewal. Uh, it was written almost a decade back, uh, if that's the correct um, name. A red book with a blue title. interesting account it mentions it's a contemporary account Aurangzeb actually sends a circular to all his uh, spies his commanders and this is done straight after Guru Tegh Bahadur has died maybe nine years afterwards and it says that keep a close eye on Gobind Rai he intends to succeed his father's mental and cause trouble for us be vigilant he lives in his city of Anandapur now particular note his city of Anandapur. The Sikhs had their own city of Anandapur. Even Ponta Sahib as a colony was actually uh, purchased from Raja Medhani Prakash, if I remember correctly. So there is no question of the Guru seeking shelter with those Rajputs in the first place. And why would Guru Sahib seek shelter with the Rajputs when no, uh, well, there is no direct and overt danger to him in, to begin with? That's the thing. That's the thing. Now, the issue of Guru Tegh Bahadur, it's asserted that, uh, you know, he sacrificed himself for a particular um, interest or something. I guess we need to relook at that because there would have been more than one interest on there. However, before relooking at it, we need to actually start clearing up the rubbish here, which is implying that he was actually employed by the Mughals. Now, the reality here is that Raja Ram Singh, his father, Raja Jai Singh I, was supreme commander of the Mughal forces. He was second to Aurangzeb. And even if they assume that, uh, well, even if they say that Guru Gobind uh, sought shelter from the uh, hell, hell kings, hell rajas, yep, 
then you were assuming that the hill rajas were sovereign well then you got to actually uh, consider something else though that why did raja bhimchand come running to guru gobind singh that i've actually uh, failed to pay tribute to aurangzeb can you please save me i mean we still have the correspondence we still have contemporary evidence the fact is that that evidence needs to be put out to all seeks all over the place so they don't fall for these glib lies because essentially it was that guru gobind singh would not be proud of seeks today for saying that they have a distinct identity now it's become let's lambast guru gobind singh as well yep well, it's a big mess and we are going to clear it up today or yep, tomorrow we'll, we'll keep working on it okay i have a small yep. question for you yes let's identify the motive what's the motive behind all all these lies now you know currently i was uh, editing my book today um sort of had a writer's block so i decided look editing might get me started which it didn't but anyhow i uh, came to the part where uh, we know that baba deep singh and his warriors went and uh, you know fought the afghans out of amritsar and this was primarily done to save sikhs who were actually still trapped around amritsar and jahan khan was bested and forced to run now i can't remember the exact year when this happened after they chased them away they started rebuilding the darbar sahib at this time punjab was actually in a three way division the first division was of course the afghans ahmed shah durani or abdali he was coming from afghanistan and uh, you know attacking the punjab because he was actually going to delhi to the punjab second uh, prominent faction in the punjab was adina beg khan who was just a nominal viceroy in name for the moguls but he was pursuing his own interests the third one was the underdog which were the sikhs now why the sikhs were always seen as being the underdogs because we uh used guerrilla tactics to fight off the enemy guerrilla warfare is a type of warfare which is done when you're uh, you know in direct contact with the people who you're fighting for it's undercover warfare you're actually uh, shielding yourself among the masses and at the same time you're listening to the masses concerns and rectifying those by incorporating you know the solutions to those concerns in your uh approach to the conflict so the sikhs were using guerrilla warfare you could never you know pin our ancestors down in one place and adina beg khan afterwards decided that you know the sikhs have forced jahan khan back i want to become the ruler of punjab by myself punjab will be my own sovereign state unfortunately for him the sikhs had their own plans by now we had the dal khalsa just as angle waliya was jatedar and you had the other missile sardars so adina beg khan went uh, sent an envoy to delhi and they reported back that the marathas have actually come along and uh, kicked najib abdullah out so should we approach the marathas and adina uh, beg said yes please approach the marathas and he offered them 100000 rupees if i remember correctly as a total payment for coming into punjab and 50000 rupees after that per day including whatever loot they obtained while fighting off you know the afghans now the history down here is that initially balaji rao if i remember correctly the maratha peshwa did not want to come into the punjab because i mean even you can appreciate how far the dakkan is from the punjab well uh, i do believe that uh... that well i know not i just believe i know that they simply didn't had how do i say 
the modern technology of that time to fight the Afghans, which, are the, which the Afghans possessed via the Turkish lines. Yep. Now, the issue, again, with the Marathas was that they could not have a, you know, supply line stretching all the way from the Dakin to the Punjab. But still, Balaji Rao was compelled to come into the Punjab for financial gain because at the end of the day, all these raids they were doing, Delhi was pretty much exhausted. There was no financial uh, benefit from raiding Delhi, only political for a short time. So against the advice of his own best commanders, he decided to march into the Punjab. Now, there is quite an interesting dynamic here. They come into the Punjab. They form a coalition with Adina. Adina approaches the Sikhs as well. The Sardars aren't fooled. They decide that find them. They will enter a coalition with Adina, but they will never come into his or the Maratha's camps. And the Sardars lead the attack onto Sirhand. They loot the booty from Sirhand, and the Maratha's come in only one to two days afterwards. And then they get into a fight with each other over why the Sikhs have such a big share of booty. Now, Adina brokers the peace. The Maratha commanders actually tell their soldiers to, you know, sort of call it because they're in foreign territory. Subsequently, what happens is that they march to Lahore. The Sikhs uh, capture multiple Afghan soldiers, bring them back to the Darbar Sahib and force them to clean it with pig's blood in a ceremonial cleaning uh, event. And two days later, Maratha commanders come to pay obeisance at Darbar Sahib and tell the Sikhs that they're now departing the Punjab. However, this history has been made out to be that the Marathas came to liberate the Darbar when in reality, Darbar Sahib was liberated almost nine months before they even came into the Punjab. Well, of course, you had to twist everything to suit your agenda, yeah. Yep, and then before the Marathas depart, the Peshwa actually sends a correspondence to Adina Beg and says, look, if you want to be a nominal viceroy, you can be a nominal viceroy, be your eyes and ears, because, you know, Punjab is the gateway to India and you're in closer proximity to Kabul than we are. But if you really think we are going to stretch out so far to come and help you against the Sikhs or the Afghans, forget about it, you're on your own. And interestingly enough, when it said that the Marathas ruled the Punjab, they actually ruled through a Mughal. They ruled, they didn't even really rule it, but even if you accept the argument for, you know, just its sake on its own, they only nominally ruled it. The real power at that time in the Punjab was Adina Beg and the Dal Khalsa. Yep, the locals. The locals. So what happens is Adina suddenly dies. He wanted to plan a Kalukara of the Sikhs, but he died in between. He left no able successor to his throne, which allowed the Dal Khalsa to, you know, sort of just annihilate all vestiges of his military and sit back and watch the show. And now the Marathas decide to uh, send Sabaji Patel, their military attache, to the Punjab to glib talk the Sikh Sardars into becoming cannon fodder for the Marathas. Yeah, I read all about that, yeah. Yes, so you can see that, you know, the designs to make Sikhs into cannon fodder have been continuing for centuries past. Now, what Sabaji Patel offered the Sardars was, look, we can enter into an alliance. You guys stay in the Punjab. Uh, you know, we will stay in the Dakkan. Essentially, if, uh, you know, Ahmed Shah comes along, we expect you to fight to the last man to hold him back. 
and the Sardars just laughed him off. And the important thing is that at that time, Sikh political leaders could say no. Political leadership, I think, at that time took uh, pragmatic decisions and uh, it directly resulted in the creation of the Sikh missiles. Yep. And that pragmatic uh, approach saw them say no. And they said, look, we are not your cannon fodder. We will fight him like we want to. We will fight him on the terms we like. And if you guys think about making an alliance behind our back, we will just destroy that alliance as well. So really, that's where that split be uh, between the Marathas and the Sikhs started to happen. However, there were attempts made at ratification. Before the Battle of Panipat, the Sikhs, uh, according to Sarjit Singh Gandhi, offered the Marathas a deal. Uh, they offered to send envoys all over India and bring all the predominant Indian rulers together in one uh, confederacy. So each ruler would rule their own territory, but report annually to, you know, wherever uh, these uh, rulers gathered together. They would train and uh, trade in between more like, you know, the federal state system in the United States, but on an all India scale rather than Punjab. And they would all be politically equal. And this unity would allow them to, you know, best any foreign invaders who came along. Again, this proposal was shot down on the grounds that, you know, according to the caste system, only some people can rule and not others. Oh, yep, true. We, we, we were seen as uh, the low-level low people who had gained political power, yep. And looking at uh, Rajput correspondence, this is exactly what happened almost a century earlier when Bandar Singh Bhadr, you know, sent a similar proposal to the Rajputs to form a pan-Indian coalition to kick the Mughals out. The proposal was shot down that, look, the Sikhs don't believe in what we believe, so we can't really unite with them. And there, uh, the old complaints, uh, let's say, pre, uh, pre-1704, at Guru Sahib, yep. on battle with the uh, Hill Rajas, is their letters to Aurangzeb simply say that, that this man has created an army of Shudras. Yes, yes. He has upended centuries of our tradition. He will upend centuries of your tradition. Why not get together and finish him off? Yep. An army and, of Udras, uh, simply say people who are, who are not predestined to rule because they're not born in a certain class, in a certain class. Hmm, that's right, that's right. Yeah. And interestingly enough, you can see that they're more than ready to make the deal with Aurangzeb, who's also actually oppressing them, who's actually defeated them in battle only a few years prior. But they aren't ready to come down to the level, you know, to the level of these uh, so-called Shudra warriors who are actually fighting to change the world. Well, Aurangzeb was their relative. I think uh, he had like two or three Rajput wives. Mm -hmm. so he was technically their Jijaji. Uh, Vazir Khan and Aurangzeb... Right? No, Aurangzeb was the Jijaji of the Rajput kings. Uh, yes, yes, because yes, they would have intermarried. Well, well, I, I don't want to use the exact word, but there has been a constant supply of women from Rajput courts to the Mughal courts for the past 200 years. Yep. Now, essentially coming down to, you know, why uh, the Sikhs did not support the Marathas during the Battle of Panipat, now, of course, what is being brandied about online is that, you know, the Sikhs dying in the Vadaka Lukara was karma for not supporting the Marathas initially. Now, you know, Sikhi doesn't believe in this past life karma thing. 
Second thing, the Marathas weren't really that strong enough that, you know, the Sikhs would have seen that, you know, not supporting them is, uh, you know, destroying ourselves. Sabaji Patel had initially uh, established a watching position at Peshawar to keep an eye on Afghanistan. So when Jahan Khan, uh, before Jahan, Jahan Khan, they had a, actually had another commander come along and Sabaji decided to take him on in a pitched battle. Sikhs told him, be careful, he's too good for you. Sabaji didn't agree. He got defeated and he had to run back. And then he had to actually ask the Sikhs for help when Jahan Khan came along. So the Sikhs ambushed Jahan Khan and killed his son and sent him fleeing back to Afghanistan. But Sabaji pretty much uh, was, you know, just brushed aside by them. You know, one time you use a stupid tactic, fine, then people can forgive you. Second time you use that same tactic, despite being advised not to, then, you know, people start thinking you're an idiot. And that's how Sikhs started, you know, thinking about Sabaji. Anyhow, Sabaji sat down with them and uh, other uh, Maratha commanders, and they pretty much said that, look, we want to take Ahmad Shah Abdali on in a pitched battle. And this time around, the Jats and the Sikhs were in agreement. They laughed them off. Ahmad Shah Abdali had, you know, like you told me, Turkish gunners, he had, you know, his guns had quite prime range. Even the British used to fear him. He had, you know, superb technology. No one could confront him in pitched battle. Well, and it also made more sense that uh, his 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 uh, soldiers, his his warriors, had more battlefield experience. Yes, they had more battlefield experience. You need to remember that Abdali was actually the second in command to Nader Shah. He actually, you know, fought outside Afghanistan as well. Fought, he was a foreign veteran, pretty much. And Ahmad Shah Abdali in his early life, when he had actually become, you know, a warrior in Nadir Shah's forces, he would have taken on Georgians, you know, all the way into Russia, beyond Europeans. He had, you know, premium experience for that time. I mean, it was for a particular reason that the British called him the best commander in Asia at that time. And when you're saying we're going to take this very uh, same commander on, you agree with that, uh, you know, classification, that acknowledgement which the British gave him, and then you say you want to take him on in pitched battle because that's how you have traditionally fought, then of course people are going to start laughing at you. That's what they said. The Sikhs refused to help them. They said, look, we will wear him down through attrition. You can't hope to take him on in a pitched battle. He's too experienced for you. The Jats agreed. Maratas didn't, and the rest we know that before coming to Panipat, you know, Ahmad Shah pretty much cut around them, cut off their supply lines, and then I can't really remember the name of the Maratha, you know, commanders at that time, the two primary commanders, but Ahmad Shah pretty much maneuvered them onto the field he wanted them on, and that's where he crushed them. And something that's hidden is that when he actually laid siege around them, Allah Singh of Patiala was actually providing the Maratas grain secretly. Oh, yeah, that might be a possibility. Yeah, he wasn't that kind of character, yeah. Yeah, so what we are talking about is that initially speaking, the Marathas had good success. It made them too overconfident. Ahmad Shah stayed back and, you know, sort of just maneuvered them into position. And then they made a very uh, fatal mistake. They decided to go on a pilgrimage to a nearby temple. And when they turned around, Ahmad Shah was gone and they got even more confident and marched forward and then suddenly realized he had actually outflanked them and was now behind them. In the front, they had a river. At the back, they had Ahmad Shah. They were pretty much packed in. 
combat maneuver. And combat maneuver. And if you look at the accounts of that battle from the morning, Hamad Shah didn't even send his cavalry forward. He just pretty much, you know, ordered his gunners, and that was it. They just blasted the hell out of that other side. I think it actually makes more sense that uh, to cover up your own failures and blame it on somebody else. <laughs> That's how history is. Well, in, in a way, it's written in the Indian context particularly. Yep. And if you look at it, at the end of the day, the only people to best Ahmad Shavir, the Sikhs, because they wore him down to attrition. Yep. You, you have to think, okay, what's the most practical thing to do at this moment? Guerrilla warfare. Yep. Now, interestingly enough, despite the people of Punjab, the Muslims, the Hindus, the lower caste Hindus suffering so much at the hands of the invaders, you would ask that, well, why were they, you know, so insistent in supporting the Sikhs who were, you know, sort of just prolonging the conflict? Well, the real reason was that the Sikhs understood their worries and the Sikhs, you know, openly communicated with them that, look, we are simple people. We just don't have the resources to take them on openly. It's better to live to fight another day rather than have no day left to fight. Well, I think I think if you have if you have reached that stage where you see okay today I'll either win or die, you have yep. lost all hope. Pretty much. So you know they and this allowed the Sikhs to boost their numbers from the common pool because the people, the common people, were saying to the Sikhs, "Look, we want you to be the rulers of Punjab. Tell us what we need to do to help you." And if someone said that, you know, one of the Sardars, I need more warriors, and you know the tradition from Bandar Singh Badr's times, all the Kisan, all the farmers, armed with their pitchforks, their slings, their bamboo, whatever they had, they would actually come forward to fight and die, even though they weren't experienced. It was just the love of liberty inside their, uh, you know, chests, inside their hearts, which the Sikhs had fired off. Yep, and uh, this has been the character of uh, the geographical region of Punjab for a very long time. And I guess the stupidity which we have committed, our historians, our intellectuals have committed, the Sikhs Sardars pretty much told Sabaji that, look, we have our own republic, our own sovereignty to establish. We can do better than everyone else. We want to show that. We never remembered that. Rather, we ingratiated it with the bigger context to say that, you know, the Sikh Sardars fought for a liberated India, which is true, but it's only, what, 20% of the truth. The other 80% is that they wanted to rule over it themselves or a portion of it, show what, you know, the political dynamic of Sikhi is. And we, I guess I mentioned it a few days back as well, the Marathas had a system of jot. This is described by uh, Jadunath Sarkar. Now, what Jot was that they would come along and demand one-fourth of a region's earnings. It could be paid in women and children and, you know, animals and money. It was more a guarantee that if you paid up, they would not come and attack you. Yep, that, that makes sense for them because they were trying to establish an empire and they needed resources. And then you look at the other end of the spectrum, the Sikhs had, you know, Raki, one-tenth, but that one-tenth was not to be paid in human flesh, so they never took women or children or anyone. Whatever you had, or food, or even if you wanted to join them in combat yourself, they would welcome you and give you a horse. But, and this is what the, you know, the British, the Americans, and all other contemporary observers noted, when you paid Raki, 
A Sikh Sardar would sacrifice his family and himself protecting you rather than let you be harmed. It was, as, it was essentially a tax, a citizenship tax. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. I think uh, the system was used more towards the, towards the Yamuna plains and in Uttar Pradesh, and, and I read about it in, in the 1780s. Yep. Now, if you look at Shivaji, Shivaji is a bonsler. He's a he's actually a lower caste from the lower castes. He's actually from the farming caste. And before he became, uh, you know, king, they had to pay quite a massive amount of money to the Brahmins to actually agree to perform his yajna. Yep. And you look. After his death, after the deaths of his successes, you have all the, you know, Brahmin Peshwas come along. They become prime ministers straight away. Essentially, they're kings, they're hereditary kings, but they just want to disguise it as prime minister. Yep, the real power behind the throne. Yep, that'll make sense. And then you look at the Sikh Sardars. Now, there is a surety here that Banda Singh Badr was a low-caste Sardar. You see, they're pretty much, you know, taken from the lower caste Jats and Shudras, and they're made masters of their own destiny. There's never any, uh, you know, system where the high castes come to dominate the low castes. Rather, you have, you know, Kalals, like Jassa Singhaluwalia was a Kalal, a wine distiller. Yep. They were supposed to be the lowest of the low. They were killed for owning a donkey. And here, that man, for all his faults, becomes the president of a Sikh republic. Uh, yeah, but I think uh, there's an, inscrip- an inscription on his coins mentioning him to be Jassakalal. Yeah, Jassakalal. He always, uh, you know, underscored that, underlined that, that look, I'm a Kalal, but look what, you know, the, through the grace of Guru Nanak, Guru Gobind Singh, look where I've reached. Now, if you look at Banda Singh's coins, through the grace of Guru Nanak, Guru Gobind Singh has handed us the sword and cauldron to victory. The credit is given to Guru Nanak. You look on missile era coins, the credit is given to Guru Nanak. But as we mentioned earlier, today the tradition, the practice has become to separate Guru Nanak from Guru Gobind Singh straight away. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, the, the thing is that Guru Nanak preached something else and then Guru Gobind Singh just went rogue off, off the track and uh, he went off the grid. Yep. And uh, you, and when you sort of, you know, rebut that, you speak against that. You argue against it. You're told, well, you're looking at it from Western lens. Well, can, you know, those individuals tell us whether Banda Singh Badr was a Westerner, that he actually wrote it on his coins? Well, even if you take a photograph of me from an Indian-made cell phone or a Western expensive camera, my face is still the same, I would say. <laughs> yes. Well, it, didn't, it doesn't make a difference. No, and history remains the same. It essentially doesn't make a difference. And I guess, you know, essentially when this Western lens practice started, I always get the impression that some idiot professor sitting in a university trying to finish off a book and he decides to add in those few words, Western lens, just to sort of, you know, augment whatever lies he's actually written in there. When you write a book, do you hmm. write a book to, to deliver what you think happened or history or about yeah. any particular topic? Or do you write a book to discredit other writers? Well, I mean, personally, when I write it, I actually deliver. I, I have rarely written anything to discredit someone else. Well, uh, that's the point I'm trying to make. If if you if you think, oh, you're looking at the Western lens, they simply say, well, maybe your lens is not good enough. That I have to look to the Western lens. 
<laughs> that's actually a good one. That's actually a good one. And essentially speaking, the stupidity of the Western lens and whatever other arguments they have against people trying to, you know, discover the purity of Sikh history, that has rendered us into cannon fodder. There is a single sentence that I would like to mention here. Yes. The whole Western lens is very convenient. It simply says that if you, if you don't see the history the way we see it, that's Western lens. Mm -hmm. There's only one correct way to see it. There's only one correct way, and that is our way. Hmm. Now, the rest of the article I've mentioned, it's pretty much rubbish. Uh, it it infers that, uh, uh, you know, I can't remember the name of that Sikh text mentions that so-and-so Rajputs trained the gurus. I have the text at home. I looked through it. I have the 1983 edition, the old edition. They can't say that today you guys are publishing it wrong. Those names are mentioned nowhere. I wasted two damn days on that. Those names are mentioned nowhere. Essentially speaking, these things exist. Such individuals exist who want to take the past away from us. It's now up to us to sort of, you know, I wouldn't say sort of to target the broader audience and tell our history ourselves. Okay. My last question for you today. Yep. The never-ending myth that uh, the eldest son in the family became a Sikh. Yep. Man, this is a major one, a major one. Yep, pretty big. So I think I think th uh, this myth uh, lies, uh, how do I say, it's at the root of this, this myth, the broader myth. Yep. That uh, we are all Hindus and the elder sons became the warriors to protect Hinduism in general. Yep. This myth is just is just not going away. No matter how hard you fight, there's, there's just another person coming with its own gravity and simply say, hmm. yeah, this is what happened. This is the history. Some of it is so uh, ludicrous. You have these old people on Facebook going around saying, oh, I remember my elder brother was like that. And you dig up further and you find out that they were a single child in the first place. <laughs> well, when you have to lie, you just, you just need uh, some a few people to agree with you because the example I gave yep. you of the slave ship sailing off to the Western New World is the same. Yep. There, there are 10, pretty much. Let, let's say there are 50 slaves on the ship, or maybe more than that, but let's say there are 50 slaves on the ship. I say something and the 50, all 50 agree. And thus, through the through a democratic process, what I believe or what I propagated has been certified. Mm hmm. Now, getting back to the original premise down here to summarize, when I went into a bookshop a few years back, an Indian bookshop, and I told them that I was actually researching for, you know, Sikh missiles, they handed me a Sarjeet Singh Gandhi's book, Sikhs in the 18th Century. And this is quite an old book. And I guess the fact is that even though you have, you know, new editions being published every now and then, why isn't there any new research being conducted in that field? Well, you're trying to light a fuse here. <laughs> well, I mean, what I'm actually saying is that how long will we keep on relying on old authors, old writers, when we should be actually researching this ourselves, publishing our own, you know, uh, findings, you know, seek findings for Sikhs and a broader audience, and through this, we will be keeping it all alive that, you know, this is our uh, past. This is the Sikh missiles. This is how they rose. 
This is what their ambitions, their aims were. And that would relate to the organic present where we can say that this was their aim. Do we have the same aims today? Do we need to have the same aims today? I but like, you never like, see that. I'd like to make a very important point here. Yes. This is an excellent strategy to bog us down. We do not, I repeat, we do not need to, how do I say, deliver rebuttals to every claim they make. Hmm. It's not the pain every... trying to wrestle you in the mud. They simply say, mm-hmm. well, I, I, I don't need to cross-reference whatever you claim is. This, is. this is who we are. We know who we are. Make whatever claims you make. I'm not, I'm not going to fight those claims. You, you will have yep. to make this decision one day because I believe that this, these so-called claims and the, the distortion of our, of our history is never going to stop. No, it won't. But at the same time, rather than refute every claim, we should be working towards relating, rewriting that history for you know current and upcoming generations so they can form the rebuttals themselves if they want to. Yep, and that, that, that would be the practical thing to do. Just a, uh, hmm. my aim is different. My aim is not to discredit your claims. My aim is not to refute your claims. My aim is to work towards the betterment of my people. Hmm. And hmm. That's I, it. I don't intend to be get distracted by by your tips and tricks and everything. I mean, Sarjeet Singh Gandhi wrote, what, a 400-page, 800-page book on the missiles. He never refuted anyone. But through that book, through the research he had, we can refute anyone who we want to today. And that's essentially what I'm getting at. We need to publish books like that. We need to publish material like that. So, you know, we are one step ahead of the people who would discredit our past and falsify it. All right. So let's recap our talk today and let's uh, just count a few points we make today. Very first point yeah. that I think we haven't made directly is that we are not the part of any so-called Sanatana Dharma. No, we are not. Absolutely not. And uh, we were not the fighting arm of somebody and anybody. No. We were not a shield to protect somebody else and anybody. And, and I think we are forgetting that today. Yes, we are. And we are actually actively trying to destroy ourselves for other people. Hmm. Be passionate about your past, but keep that passion to a certain, you know, limit. Yep, and uh, I have only one loyalty. Yep. Yep, okay. So, uh, and uh, another point <clears throat> that we have to make, and I think we just talked about it, we need to yep. re- do our own research. We do, actively. Anything else? That's pretty much it. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, Wahiguruji Kakal Sahib.